This podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the i3 Investment Insights podcast. Today we're lucky to have a very special guest. He is a member of Pension Fund Royalty and is Professor Keith Ambachia. Uh, he's known for many journal articles for the uh, from the Financial Analyst Journal, the Journal of Portfolio Management, and the Rotman International Journal of Pension Management. He publishes the monthly Ambachia Letter. He's recently published his fourth book, which has been translated into Chinese, and he's just been to China to promote the book. Professor Ambachia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Well, uh, it's probably a good place to start by finding out a little bit more about you and how you got into the pension industry. So, where did it all begin? <laughs> well, the, uh, there, there are many ways you can answer that question. Uh, the, the one that I like the best, I, I think, is that um, I, I, I started out professionally as uh, an applier of portfolio theory. So, I, I met Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp and all those people and uh, I got a job in the investment department of Sun Life in Montreal, and they had, you know, they had everything. They had stocks and bonds and mortgages and real estate and currencies, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, my first job was to uh, to actually learn the theory, meet the people who wrote it, and then learn what a inv- real-world investment department does, and then to see whether the theory could in any way improve the behavior and results of the investment department. So I, I did that from '69, and, and it was an interesting, uh, interesting period. And, and the thing, of course, that it comes down to is is the uh, people have to behave in a certain rational way in order for the theory to make sense, and that turned out to be a bit of a challenge in in, in many in many ways. Uh, so uh, what changed my career is that I happened to read, be one of the few people in the world to to read Peter Drucker's one and only book on pensions. It was called The Unseen Revolution. He wrote it in 1976, and it basically set me on a track that I'm still on today, uh, 40 years plus later. And, and what he said in the book uh, was was really interesting because you know, he's writing this in the 70s, so the baby boomers are still young, but he could see them eventually uh, getting old, uh, as they now are today in many cases, or getting there. And he posed uh, three big questions about, you know, how that would change society, would change economics, would change social policy. And and the first one was around, um, you know, what should retirement income systems look like? You know, what what are good sustainable designs? And that was an important question, obviously. The second question that he asked was around uh, governance and organization design questions. You know, what kind of organizations uh, would be best equipped to actually manage pension systems? So that was the second question. And then the third one was around how do we turn retirement savings into wealth-producing capital? So it was the investment question. And uh, it, it struck me that those three questions uh, – you could make a career out of trying to answer them, and that, in fact, is what I've been doing. If you look at my fourth book, which just came out last year, uh, it is, in fact, called still The Future of Pension Management, Integrating uh, the Pension Design, Governance, and Investing. So um, I'm still at it 40 years later. 
Well, that's that's a great story, and it sounds like you've been very fortunate to have a, a great seat from which to watch uh, the pension industry grow and develop uh, from from a number of different perspectives. Thing that that worked best turned out to work best for me. The the way that I I, I think I'm most effective is uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, I started out in the Canadian military, very large organization, then Sun Life, still a large organization. Uh, then I, I started a, a pension advisory firm with some other colleagues, a smaller organization. And then finally, by the time that 85, I was pretty well uh, down to my own with my own perch. And, and you know, what what you can do as an independent that's not beholden to anything is that you can be more forceful about your views, uh, about saying things that, you know, that, that may not be quite, you know, uh, uh, corporate, <laughs> corporate philosophy in many cases. But because if you're on your own and you, you, you come across as a straight shooter, you know, that tells it the way it is, uh, it turns out there's a market for that. That's very interesting. So in, in terms of your views that you've been forthright uh, in expressing, what do you think are the, are the main things that you'd like to see uh, done differently or, or changed in the pension industry? If you should take the three issues, you have the design question, the organizational effectiveness question, and the investment question. In, in all three areas, uh, you know, we can move the yardsticks beyond where we are now. Uh, so if you take, for example, the design question, uh, you know, the World Bank did us a favor by, by proposing a, a three-pillar uh, pension system as kind of a generic starting point. And that allows you to ask, you know, the big questions around Pillar 1, which is the, uh, you know, the, the, the universal public piece, uh, Pillar 2, which has to do with workplace pensions, and Pillar 3 is basically where you make it up on your own. And, you know, in each one of those three dimensions, uh, there are issues today. And uh, there are better ways of doing things than current general practice. Uh, if you go, you know, the governance organization design route, same story. Uh, you know, we know a lot about the way currently things are being done. Uh, the kind of barriers to better organizational performance that are out there, we, we kind of know what they are and what we would need to do to, to enhance that. And then on the investment side, the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I drag in uh, actually a lot of Nobel Prize winners. And uh, John Maynard Keynes never got a Nobel Prize. I guess he was too early or he died too soon. Uh, but, you know, he, uh, uh, he he turned out not only was he a great economist, but he also ran the endowment fund for Cambridge University. And, and so he actually had some very acute insights as an institutional investor himself. And, and he basically, in his 1936 book, he said, look, there's two kinds of active investing. One is what he called speculation or trading. And the other one is wealth, you know, wealth creation. Uh, so one's very short-term oriented, the other one's very long-term oriented. And you know, that's, that's a profoundly important idea that we're still struggling with today of how do we you know, get out of the uh, high turnover, short-termism trenches and how do we really uh, you know, use capital to create wealth. It, it's, still, it's still a challenge even today. Definitely. So if you had to think about the top three impediments to long-term investing, what do you think they'd be? One is 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 behavioral. Uh, you know, it, it's the way that we're wired as humans, um, and you know, it, it's an appropriate. In fact, that you know, the Nobel Prize just went to uh, uh, Dick Thaler, 
And, you know, he's a behavioral economist. And, you know, he, he describes in great detail how human behavior is often inconsistent with the rational behavior that theory assumes. So, so you know, immediately uh, that sets you off on a, on a track of given the reality of how people behave, what does that imply of how we should design pension systems? That's just sort of one example of, of, of taking theory and observation and turning it into you know, better outcomes on the design. And you can you know, tell similar kind of observations uh, on, the, on the investment side. Back to the long-termism question. So, so you know, the first one really is behavioral. It's just understanding that uh, we tend as humans to have a short-term orientation. That if we're going to uh, you know, have disciplined long-term investment programs, uh, we're going to have to build systems that basically encode that into the culture of how investments are managed. And that's a big thing. Uh, most organizations today in the world don't have that culture. And even though they may say they're long-term investors, they're really not. So, so that, that's just you know, the, the, the behavioral thing. The second thing about impediments to long-term investing is this is another Nobel Prize, uh, George Akerlof, and his uh, prize, uh, economics prize was for uh, explaining the importance of asymmetric information in how markets work. And so you know, the basic idea is that if the sellers know more about what they're selling than the buyers know about what they're buying, guess what? <laughs> you know, the sellers win at the expense of the buyers. Uh, the buyers will pay too much for too little. And uh, it turns out that the market for investment management services is maybe the biggest market in the world that suffers from asymmetric information, which means that uh, investment institutions, if they choose to do so, can basically pick off retail investors because they just know more about how things work than retail investors do. So you've got, you've got a fiduciary duty problem, let's call it that. Uh, and a, uh, an incentive uh, to uh, promote and engage in behavior which is not in the best interest of the clients. And then I think the third impediment to, uh, to truly long-term investing is information. Uh, a lot of the information that we get, I mean, <laughs> you can turn on the television, right, 24-7, and you turn it to the financial channel, and what do you get? I mean, you get day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, if you look at you know uh, industry reports, they tend to be short-term oriented. What you know, what's what's next quarter's earnings going to be? What's the expectation? How where's it actually going to come in? And was that, is that going to make the stock go up or down? Uh, and so, if we don't provide people with long-term information or information that matters in a long-term con you know, context, sustainability data, for example. Uh, then you're going to get short-term behavior. So those are my those are my three impediments. It's it's you know the, the the wired in factor from human behavior, and what you can do to counter that. Uh, the 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 tendency or or the 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 incentives for in fact using short-term behavior to game the customer. And third, uh, turning short-term information, which we're always in, inundated with, into uh, a different information set that really informs us with respect to long-term investing. I think that's a very important list, and uh, I definitely agree with, with all of the points, in particular the third, that uh, the information that you look at really should align with your investment horizon. If you're a long-term investor, then... Uh, 
regularly feeding at a diet of, of short-term news is, is going to make that difficult. Right. And, and, you know, now we're getting to a really important heart of the matter is, you know, what does relevant material, long-term, long-term oriented information, what does it look like? You know, what is it? Where does it come from? And you know how is it best presented? And and this is a, this is a real shortcoming in you know in today's professional world. We're great at you know pumping out short-term stuff. We're not very good at thinking through you know what are the drivers of a sustainable long-term cash flow, and you know what are the impediments to that long-term cash flow, <laughs> you know not being a long-term cash flow. And that requires you to think of things like, for example, you know, the, the, the impact of climate change may be relevant. Uh, you know, the, the impact of, of market structure may be, uh, may be relevant. Uh, but you're going to have to look and, and you know, you're going to have to look at the organization design of the, you know, the corporations that you invest in. Do they really have a board that understands, you know, the nature of the business? And how to create incentive schemes for management, uh, you know, that in fact are, are likely to align the interests of shareholders with inside management. I mean, those are the kind of things that you have to look at and develop material information on if you're going to, you know, if you're going to basically live long term rather than just talk long term. It's a challenge. Uh, we're not there yet. Definitely. So, in terms of thinking long term. How should pension funds think about short-term performance or peer-relative performance, or, or should they even think about it at all? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, Drucker, uh, you know, one of the great Druckerisms is what gets measured gets managed. So you've got to measure something. And, but then the question is, you know, what, do you, what is previous, uh, previous uh, comment is, is what do you measure that uh, that actually has information content, and and obviously you know short term returns have very little inf- or zero or maybe even negative information content, so it's not relevant. But on the other hand, uh, and this is this whole question around you know the notion of of a, a liability portfolio or a reference portfolio. I do think that it's important you know to turn the mandate of a particular investment mandate. Uh, which may relate to a pension balance sheet, for example, to saying, okay, you know, what's a, what, what's a relevant reference portfolio that would be a legitimate alternative to what we're going to do as, as, as active managers? And, and, you know, it raises a couple of important questions. Number one, you know, what does that, what is that passive alternative you know, that captures the, the, the relevant risk exposure of whoever is underwriting or is exposed to the risk of, you know, this asset pool, you do need to think that through. And you do need to think about, you know, what would be the most or the least risky way of implementing that mandate and what's the lowest cost way of implementing that mandate. I think you need to go through that so that over the long term, you know, you're measuring an alternative to what you're doing. And uh, uh, some of the people that listen to this may, may know I started up something, uh, co-founded something called CEM Benchmarking back in 1991. And, uh, you know, it's now 25, 26, 27 years later. And, and so there are now databases, you know, that, that, that are multi-decade databases you know, that capture, you know, certain approaches to investing. Uh, and you do need to, to, to look at those pro- approaches and look at what they're actually producing net of costs 
in relation to an investable alternative. So I'm, I'm very much in the space that you know we do need reference portfolios, but they need to be long-term reference portfolios. And, and, and again, you know, quarterly stuff doesn't matter. Uh, it's only when a certain approach is in place for longer than 10 years that you start to develop some, you know, rather than noise, you're starting to develop information about whether this approach really uh, is a superior approach to just simply, you know, buying the market. So you need to do it, but you need to do it with the right metrics over the right period of time. I think that's an excellent point. Uh, ben benchmarking really has to inform your decision making. It has to help you uh, assess the quality of your decisions and point to ways right. in which you can improve them uh, rather than just describing history. I think that's a, a very important point. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that uh, don't, I think there is information in, in looking at that whole measurement process in, in, in a peer relative sense. And I'll give an example. I, I just you know, took some data or asked for some data from, from CEM benchmarking. Uh, that was all 10-year data. And it was all put in the context of uh, one group was against you know, liability portfolios, where, where the liability portfolio is basically the lowest risk approach to you know, meeting a certain set of liabilities. It's typically a you know, high-quality bond portfolio of a certain duration with a certain inflation sensitivity. And then, you know, it's a legitimate question that if you're going to take mismatch risk to that portfolio, you know, what should you get paid for it? And how much mismatch risk should you take? And then the exposed part is, well, you know, what actually over the last 10 years, what happened? And then uh, you can not only do that for yourself, but if you also have a peer relative database, you know, that measures the same thing for 100 other organizations, uh, well, that's interesting information because, you know, you're now starting to get some information about how does the whole group do? And if you get some standout performances, you know, of, of some of the individual observations or organizations in relation to that, you know, 100-member uh, peer group, uh, it is legitimate to ask what happened. You know, what, you know, what did these people do that put them, you know, below the zero line, uh, in a material way, and what do these other people do that are above the zero line in a particular way? And I did this recently, for example. You know, the uh, the Canada model seems to have uh, developed some sort of uh, you know international following. And I did a recent study, got the data from the CM database in terms of you know, looking at organizations that I think have followed the Canada model for at least ten years, and looked at their behavior in relation to a much larger peer group. And guess what? You know, they really did have materially higher uh, excess returns at normal costs and normal risk levels. So, they, you know, there's something going on there. And then, of course, you know, the, the second level of question is, well, you know, what is going on? You know, what has made the difference? And those are legitimate questions, but they're not answerable, uh, you know, with noise. Uh, you, you actually need information. Uh, Drucker called it, you know, information is data endowed with relevance and purpose. I like so you that gotta have quote. It. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Drucker's got a lot of great quotes. In terms of promoting this long-term viewpoint, how should pension funds trustee allocate their time? Well, you know, there's a fundamental principle in uh, in governance, and, and here I'm talking about you know the oversight body that basically sits on top of some organization that has a mission and has a management 
you know, in that context, you know, what, what's the role of the board? And, and the role of the board is, number one, to understand the mission of the organization. Uh, number two, to understand uh, or criticize or, you know, the strategic plan that management brings to it to say, you know, here's our mission and here's the, what we think the best way is to achieve that mission over the long term. And then uh, you know, once you get agreement on that, then it becomes a, a monitoring process of, you know, how how are we doing relative to, uh, you know, implementing our strategic plan. And what you find from the research, people that do research on, you know, sort of the behavior of boards, uh, what they generally find, too little time on strategic stuff and too much time on micro stuff that often, are, you know, are management issues, not board issues. So would that argue in favor of increased delegation to internal staff? Well, what it argues, <laughs> what it argues for, first of all, is to uh, create selection processes for board, you know, board membership, to make sure you get the right people. Uh, and and one of the, the the way that I think about you know, what are some of the key determinants of a a great board member. And for me, you know, the number one thing is ability to think strategically. And, you know, there's a whole science around measuring people sort of strategic thinking capabilities. Um, but, you know, it's also, I think, fairly obvious from a person's background. And if you do the right kind of due diligence, whether, you know, whether this person is a strate- has strategic thinking capability or not. Uh, so that's you know that that to me is one is is one important criteria as to you know what you know what you need in in a good board member. Another one for me is uh, public service. In other words, you go on a board uh, not to be a hero, uh, not to make a lot of money, uh, but in fact to make a contribution to making the organization a better organization. So that's something that I would look for. And, you know, those two things, if you've got that strategic a strategic capability element uh, as well as some rubber on the road in terms of actually having experience, you know, that's relevant to this particular organization, you know, investment, uh, HR, uh, strategic management, uh, audit, then, uh, then you end up with a great board. You know, if on the other hand... Uh, you have a process where board members come out of some, you know, union selection process or some political process where the politicians decide that their friend should be on, you know, this board or that board. Guess what? You're not going to get a good board. You know, they're not going to have the qualities that you need for the organization to achieve its mission longer term in a really great cost-effective way. So the, 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 the fundamental thing to me is... Uh, processes that put the right people on board. So in in terms of regulators, what should be their role in promoting long-term investment? Well, they, they need to understand the concept first. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, I, I think that, that regulators also go across this the same range that I talked earlier uh, from on the one hand, you know, understanding being strategic thinkers, understanding what regulation should be doing and what that implies of you know what are good rules and bad rules, and on the other hand, you know, uh, being a sort of semi-brain dead bureaucrat who just you know ticks, bo- ticks boxes. 
so uh, to me you've got the same kind of challenges with the, with respect to you know the regulatory function as you would with respect to a board function is you know how do you get the right people uh, in in the seats you know that that can think about uh, the fact that you know what should be required from any investment organization is that it articulates what its culture is and what its its philosophy is and what its investment beliefs are and you know as a regulator uh, you know one of the things that i I would want to to, to see is that you know the, that there are actually processes in place where investment organizations, you know, go through that discipline of, of sorting out these difficult questions. And then, you know, the other the other critical element is compensation. How do you compensate your people? And you can miscompensate in a number of different ways. What happens, ironically, a lot as you look at, you know, pension organizations around the world is uh, they can't pay in for certain kinds of functions uh, they've got compensation ceilings that, yeah, that prevent them from hiring the kind of people that you need to be really successful, especially, for example, in private markets, you know, private markets area. Uh, area. This is, a, I think, the big comparative advantage that, you know, that, that the Canadian model has broken through, which is, is this recognition that you know, if you're going to be uh, – on top of your game in any kind of private market activity, whether it's you know private equity or infrastructure, real estate, uh, whatever, uh, that you need people that really understand those markets, you know, that have the networks to be effective, and you know whether you like it or not, uh, those are high compensation labor pools. And if you can't pay good, you know the the people that you want, even though they'll work for half of what they would, you would make at Goldman Sachs, for example, uh, you're still going to be paying them, you know, much bigger bucks than you know the, the typical you know, pension employee, pension fund employee. And if you can't hire those people, then you have to outsource. And if you outsource, you know, the the, the logic and the numbers tell you that you end up paying up to potentially. Ten times the amount of what it would take to insource, and you know, do that function internally, and pay people in some cases, yes, a million, two million dollars. Uh, so you know, that's just one example of the kind of things that regulators need to understand, uh, you know, in terms of business models that you know they're overseeing as to whether people are doing the right things or whether you know the the, the thing is going off the rails in some way. You've mentioned the the Canada model a couple of times in your responses. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more on what that is and why it's been so successful. Well, it, it's it's the uh, my narrative starts again with Drucker. Uh, what comes out of Drucker for any organization, if you get it down to you know three success drivers, it's clarity of mission, good governance. And the ability to acquire the resources that you need in order to achieve the mission. Those are the three things. And what happened was that a window opened up in uh, in Canada, Ontario specifically, in the 1980s, uh, where the government uh, created a task force to look at the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of uh, the whole pension uh, management investment process. And uh, I uh, got signed up for uh, for advisor uh, advisory capacity of the chair of the, 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 this committee, this commission. 
And so what got imbued into the recommendations was this notion that pension organizations (laughs) should have, guess what, clear missions, good governance, and the ability to achieve the mission by having no resource constraints. And uh, that looked, you know, that was a lot different than the, 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 the actual reality on the ground in the 1980s. And what happened was that uh, the the treasurer of of the province of Ontario and the president of the Ontario Teachers Federation, uh, Margaret Wilson, uh, decided that, wow, you know, maybe we should create a pension organization that actually has those three features. And they did. It's called Ontario Teachers. It started up in 1990. And um, because they got the right people to actually, you know, run the business, uh, it's probably the most successful pension organization in the world over the course of the last 25 years. And then, you know, other Canadian organizations started to use the same three success drivers. Uh, and, you know, now it's traveled uh, around the world. And in some cases, you know, it, it, it's implementable. In other places, it's not. You know, if you can't, if you don't have a process for getting a great board, if you don't have a process for actually hiring the people that you need to hire to be successful in private markets, then, you know, you've got two hands tied behind your back. Would something like the Canada model work in Australia, and and would it work for smaller funds? Yes, the the smaller funds, they have to, I mean, if they they got a clear mission, they got a great board, they still have two things going for them. But, you know, to insource, you do need scale. And, you know, the interesting question is, you know, what scale level uh, do you need? And that's debatable. I mean, there's no single, there's no single number. Uh, you know, I think anything over 50 billion, you're, you're you know, you're uh, free and clear. But I think you can do a lot of these things with maybe, you know, half that size. On the other hand, if you're, you know, if you're a, a $1 billion fund, you can't. And and so for the one billion dollar funds in the world, you know, the question is: given that we can't insource, um, no, what's the second best? You know, what's the second best thing for us to do? And frankly, for a lot of those funds, would be to, you know, figure out, uh, you know, what the right appropriate risk exposures are given, you know, whatever business they're in, whether they're a super fund or a sovereign wealth fund or whatever, and just you know, buy the market at two two basis points or whatever. For a lot of funds that are small, that's the best way to go. It, I, I agree, but uh, we rarely see that happen. I guess um, funds are uh, somewhat concerned that if they do that, it perhaps highlights the fact that they're not adding much value. Well, but again, and and you know, I, I've got I've got a lot, I've got some money writing on your productivity commission that's going to come out with this report in January. Uh, where they make these issues clear, you know, to to the world, and and if you do make them clear, you know, then you get into some very interesting fiduciary duty questions, which basically are, you know, if it's generally known that certain kinds of structures basically extract wealth from a certain group of people and put it in the pockets of another group of people. Is that legal? You know, is that not is that not chargeable or is that not challengeable in court? So I, I, I would like to think that's where this goes. 
Do you think the the, the system that uh, we have in Australia, where we have uh, open competition and uh, super is portable, members can elect in many cases, not all, which fund to be a, a, a member of. Do you think that that system promotes a better outcome or it promotes... Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't because, you know, you read George Akerlof, uh, Asymmetric Information. Uh, you know, this is not this this is not an area uh, where consumers can make informed decisions, <laughs> and and the idea that somehow competition you know will change all that is just wrong. The what's required to get good outcomes is fiduciary behavior by boards, boards that are required that are knowledgeable and are required to act in the best interest of their members. That's what creates better outcomes. But you know, I think another big question, uh, and you know, this is interesting, where you've got you know a, a future fund uh, that in Australia that is large enough to insource, but it doesn't. Interesting. It's legally not allowed to. Well, but you know, if something makes sense that you should be doing, you change the law. Mm-hmm. The Norwegians have the same the same issue. I mean, I, I had this you know this discussion in Norway with their what at that time was called a petroleum fund, twenty years ago, and you know they decided they wanted to uh, to, to be largely passive, and uh, and tend to run it out uh, out of their central bank, Norges Bank, and they just had uh, a uh, parliamentary review commission that now basically said, well, uh, it might that might have been a good idea 20 years ago, but it's not now. And in fact, uh, you sh- uh, we should adopt the, I didn't specifically call it the Canada model, but effectively that's what it is. You know, pull the $1 trillion fund out of the central bank, set it up as an arm's length agency, create a great board, and, you know, redefine its mission. And, you know, if they do all of those things, I mean, I, I did a study for them just a couple of years ago, it's in the public domain, that basically said, you know, you're, you're basically leaving 100 basis points on the table by, you know, running it the way you're running. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and it, it turns out that the 100 basis points uh, is something like 10% of the Norwegian federal budget. Just on the, the low return environment and circling back to the discussion we had earlier on long-term investing, uh, I see a lot of funds, because we're in a low return environment and particularly the, the diversifying, the traditionally diversifying assets such as bonds having such low yields, I see a lot of funds uh, looking at things like um, trend following strategies or risk parity strategies which aren't necessarily as long-term as what we were talking about earlier. Do these strategies have a place in a pension fund? Um, well, I think it's a cop-out. You know, you go back to Keynes, uh, you know, investing is taking retirement savings and turning them into wealth-producing capital. So... You know, what you're describing, I mean, how does that relate to wealth-producing capital? What, you know, what I find that most of these, you know, statistically driven strategies uh, are relatively short-term strategies because, you know, they're only, they only work 
as long as you're in the minority and you know the majority is doing something else. If the majority starts doing what you're doing, it's over. So I, I, it, that just doesn't strike me as a very constructive way to get people into an investment department and say that's your job is to you know run all these statistics and try and trick, uh, try and squeeze a little more return out of the market at the cost of somebody else. I mean, is that really investing? I think that's a good good question for funds to consider. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Keith. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to find out more about your work. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit i3-invest.com forward slash insights.